Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. What does the Bible say about the atonement? This is uh, part two in our series looking at this particular question. If uh, you, you heard part one, you will remember that uh, we argued that the atonement has to be objective. That the, the first question to decide with regard to the atonement, and they sort of make sense of all of the theories. All of the theories must be sorted into, into one of these two categories, uh, either objective or subjective. And the question that we are answering with regard to the objective nature of the atonement is whether or not uh, Christ's death accomplishes something that must be done with respect to God in some way. That there's there's something that was needed to be done by someone other than us, like other than other than a sinner, in order for us to be made right with God. That the atonement is more than simply uh, influencing us to act in a certain way. Uh, it must have some uh, objective reference to the wrath of God and the satisfaction uh, of that wrath. It must actually objectively save us from our sins to do an act that we could not do. So that was what we looked at in part one. We saw that the, that the, the nature of the case, the, the fact of our sins, the fact of God's wrath against sin necessitates an objective atonement. We saw many of the, the New Testament statements which show that the uh, death of the Lord Jesus Christ does provide an object of atonement, and we ended with an example that came from uh, from the Exodus, from the Passover, where um, the angel of death passes over those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, which is uh, an expression of an objective atonement. Now, one of the things that is important to consider as well, that was just hinted at in part one, is uh, the need particularly to have the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who makes atonement for sins. This is something that I mentioned briefly, uh, but did not have the opportunity to expand on in part one. And it's important to, to keep in mind uh, that this is in fact the case. It's it's not just with regard to the atonement that, um, that there had to be something objective done, but also that there had to be one able to die as our representative. So in this sense, one that comes from us, one who is who is like us in the sense that he is a man like us, and yet, unlike us in the sense that he is uh, sinless, uh, there had to be someone like this who would come, but not just anyone. It could not just be a normal sinless person. It actually had to be the eternal Son of God. And that uh, in this regard, then, anything less than the Son of God becoming incarnate would be insufficient uh, for our atonement. It could not have been an angel. It could not have been a, a, any of the heavenly beings. It had to be. Uh, it, it, even a sinless, a sinless man in and of himself. It had to be God himself becoming man for us. Now, one of the, the best explanations of the reason for the, uh, for the necessity of the incarnation for atonement uh, comes in uh, the, the very famous work that uh, Anselm wrote uh, called Cur Deus Homo or Why the God-Man. Now, this, uh, this work uh, so is, it, according to the title, uh, um, trying to explain the necessity of the atonement. Why is it that God became man? And, uh, excuse me, the necessity of the incarnation. So why is it that God became man in the incarnation? And yet the entire book is actually a, a, a about the, the atonement. And the idea that, uh, that Anselm was putting forward is that the nature of the atonement that was needed for man to be saved from their sins required a, a penalty to be paid that was infinite. And so the way that Anselm uh, formulated his theory, which is called the satisfaction theory, it's, it's almost the, the same as the penal substitutionary atonement of the Reformation, just one small difference. But what Anselm 
uh, labored to show was that because of sin, man cannot save himself. And because of who he has offended in his sin, uh, the, the debt that is owed, so to speak, is actually infinite. And so the idea here is that man, when he sins, has offended a holy God who is infinite and glorious and eternal. And therefore, uh, the way that Anselm formulated his theory was uh, there has been an offense against infinite honor, against divine honor. And that honor must be restored if God is going uh, to be able to for forgive man uh, of his sins. Now, the only real difference between this and the uh, the reformed view of penal substitutionary atonement uh, is that in penal substitutionary atonement, there is a legal element to it. It's not, it's not, it's not rooted in honor, but it's rooted in legality. Uh, but with regard to Anselm, the thing that, that we would agree with on Anselm, which would be really most of the theory, is that there is an infinite debt that is owed. There's an infinite debt that's owed because the sins are against an infinite being. And because of this, there is then a demand for an infinite satisfaction to be made an infinite satisfaction that must be made. The problem is, is that nobody can make an infinite satisfaction. Uh, an angel can't, a sinless man can't. If you think about it just with regard to strict ideas of substitution and with regard to uh, to sinless beings, one of the, the examples that Anselm gives is, let's say you have a man and let's say uh, he sins. He sins one time and then he lives the rest of his life absolutely perfectly. Well, he can't use his perfect living as an atonement for his past single sin because he already owes God this perfect obedience as a creature to him. And so you, you, that certainly can't make up for uh, a, a sin that he committed in the past. He has simply now begun to live in the way that he should. However, he's still guilty for the actions of the past. So, for instance, if you think about this with regard to uh, even today with our justice system, you know, if there's a, if there's a murder that's committed, uh, then um, just because the, the person uh, behaves better after that does not mean that he's no longer liable to punishment for the murder that he's committed. Uh, once he's committed that murder, even if he lives the rest of his life perfectly, he still is liable to punishment because of that act of murder. And so the same thing is true with regard to, to man. If man were completely sinless, well, that doesn't accrue to him any extra benefit. It just means that he has lived in a way that is necessary for every creature of God. God deserves perfect obedience, and anything less than that means that that man is liable to punishment. And so if you think about then what a perfect man would be able to atone for in terms of sin, he would not really be able to atone for anything. He would simply not be guilty of sins himself. Certainly his life would not be worth uh, uh, the atonement of, of, an, of an innumerable number of people that are compared in the, in the scriptures to the stars in the sky. Uh, if you would think about the death of someone, so like let's say there is a person who is uh, perfectly sinless, lives an entire life that way, and then he dies. He's not. He doesn't need to die because he's sinless, and yet he dies uh, for the sake of others. Well, at best, he could save one person because he is one person. He could be put in the place of one other person, and if that person was a sinner, then perhaps you could say it would be in, in accordance with the principles of justice that the one person could be saved. Now, the problems with this are uh, that, one, the people of God are much more than just one person, uh, and two, there is no such thing as a sinless person except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who's more than just a, a, a sinless person. And so there is no way that a, a sinless man can atone for the sins of anyone, and there would be no such man that we could find anyway. With regard to the angels, you have a similar problem, that there is, um, uh, even if we say that you know, angels are sinless, 
there's still the idea that they are having to atone for sins that are made against an infinite being. Um, and this, this could not even be done with even one person. Um, so this would even be a problem with the sinless man theory, uh, but it is uh, uh, a problem with the angel theory as well. How could an angel atone for sins? Uh, he, he can't provide an atonement that matches the offense paid to an infinite God. And even if he could for a single sinner, surely he couldn't for an innumerable number that, again, the scriptures compare to the stars uh, in the sky, the number of people that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved by his death. And so because of this, there is a necessity for the incarnation. If you were to ask, why is it that God has to become man? The answer is to make an atonement for sins. And so if you just back up then and, and to consider the, the relationship that the incarnation has with the, with, with the atonement, uh, the, our sins are such that an infinite being must pay our penalty. And yet the one who pays our penalty has to be able to represent us before God. And so that person has to be man, but he also has to be much more than man. And so think about this then with regard to what's needed. You have to have God die. That's, that's essentially the only way that man could have his sins atoned for. The only way that a penalty that is infinite could be paid is if God himself died. And so if you were told this situation, you've sinned and God will choose whether or not to provide an atonement for you. The only way that you can have your atonement, uh, have your sins atoned for is if God himself dies. Now, this would immediately, uh, surely cause you to uh, lament and to say, well, then it's impossible. Uh, how could it be that God could die? Because God can't, God can't die. God, uh, God is the one who is immortal. And then to hear in the scriptures, to read in the scriptures, that God has provided such a way because God who cannot die became man in order to die in order to then provide the perfect atonement for the sake of his people. And this is the reason why it's so important that we affirm that actually what's happening on the cross is that God himself is dying. God is dying on the cross, though, though God can't die in terms of the divine nature, yet the one who became man is God, and that one hung on the cross to die for the sake of the salvation of his people. You think then of, of Acts 20, 28 with regard to this, uh, that that uh, Paul affirms that the Ephesian elders are to keep watch over the flock, uh, the church of God, which which he purchased with his own blood, which God purchased with his own blood. This uh, is the only way that a true atonement could be made. And this is what we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who is God and man, uh, suffering on the cross for the sake uh, of his people. And so if we were to ask, What's the relationship between atonement and incarnation? The answer is really everything. The, the uh, incarnation is necessitated by the atonement that was required for, uh, for the salvation of the people of God. There is no other way. There is no other possible way that we could be saved. This is what, what Christ was praying in the garden. He says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup come to pass. But if not, let your will be done. Christ went to the cross to prove that there was, in fact, no other way. And therefore, there is no other game, name given uh, under heaven by which we can be saved. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.